If you want this podcast free of ads, follow us now on patreon.com forward slash David McWilliams. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome. Like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome. Like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. economic indicators who knows where this is going to end up to understand the economy you have to understand human nature this podcast is powered by Acast. how are you doing there before we start i just want to give you a heads up about ted talks daily an amazing amazing podcast our old mate stephanie kelton she of the deficit myth who came to kilconomics years ago and now is very much at the vanguard of an intellectual movement in the United States, just did an extraordinary TED Talk. And it's a very difficult thing to do, to get all your thoughts down succinctly into a short, concise talk. But Stephanie did it extremely well. And if I were you, have a gander at Stephanie's talk on TED Talks Daily, the podcast. Not just Stephanie, there's all sorts of other good stuff there. But as you're interested in this podcast You'll be interested in what Stephanie has to say. So that's Stephanie Kelton on TED Talks Daily. Now, how are you, Head? I'm good. What's going on? You're still down sunning yourself. Kind of avoiding the sun, if the truth be known, but I feel a bit shortchanged now. The last couple of days, we've had one of those late August Mediterranean weather changes, which happens at the end of August, always in this neck of the woods, that you get the, the world kind of this part of what heats up, it heats up in the first two or three weeks of August. Yeah. And then suddenly you get this extraordinary break in the weather. Good. <laughs> yeah, so life is fine. It's the usual stuff. You know, I'm reading and, and, and doing that sort of carry on. Excellent. But interestingly, we're going to go back to Afghanistan, which we started with Nelifer Pazira Fisk last Thursday. And we're going to talk to the great she was Peter Frankopan, mm. the, the author of The Silk Roads, historian of that part of the world. And all around good egg, by the way, because I think, Events are moving so quickly there, John, that if we don't keep an eye on it, and it's not just events in Afghanistan, but it's the geopolitics of it, what Absolutely, happens to yeah. Biden, what happens to China, all that sort of stuff. So yeah. we're going to go there in a few minutes. Yeah, but it's interesting, actually, that it was only last week that you were saying that August is one of those months where it's it's a bit peculiar because everything seems to kick off in August, isn't it? Loads of things kick off in August. Well, John, I remember I was just talking about the, the, the Mediterranean rains just now, right? Yeah. So basically what is going on is August means obviously Augustus. It comes from the Emperor Augustus, right? So Augustus was the first 
proper emperor uh, after the Roman Republic. And he was a real <laughs> impressive geezer. Yeah. And so impressive was he that he figured out that naming months after yourself was a good move. You're right, he's okay. You know, if you want to be a proper <laughs> megamaniac not? emperor, right? And August was basically, it was called Fera Augusta. It was the holiday of August. And there was always a holiday. And of course, if you're an emperor, not only do you name a month after you, but you name a month with lots of holiers in after you. So you yes, become associated with holidays and good yeah, times yeah, yeah. and, you know, Campus Marcus and gladiators and all that good bread and circuses, bread and circuses. But the reason <laughs> that August was a holiday is actually got to do with climate and climate change. It's fascinating, right? So go on. Before the Romans, of course, the great civilization was the Egyptians, right? the Greeks and the Egyptians. And the Egyptian civilization was all based around the power of the River Nile because the River Nile irrigated Egypt and the River Nile made Egypt a, the breadbasket, amazingly, of yeah. the Mediterranean. And the River Nile used to flood every August and still does. And the reason it floods every August, and this is fascinating stuff, is because the monsoons in the Indian Ocean, you love all this because this is your sort of stuff, Yes, I do, yeah, yeah. Happen in May and June. And the elevated heights in Ethiopia, we forget that Ethiopia is an unbelievably mountainous country. So the monsoons come in over the Indian Ocean. They rain on Ethiopia. That rain goes into the Blue and the White Nile, the two rivers that lead into the Nile. And then it takes a couple of months for that huge deluge of fresh new water to end up in the Nile Delta, which is in where Alexandria is now yeah. on the Mediterranean. And then as the rains come through Ethiopia, down the mountains, fill into the Nile, what they do is they swell the river. And then the river becomes much, much, much more, it's almost tidal at this stage, right? It's yeah. huge, huge rates. And this then drags all the silt all the way up to the delta, and the silt makes the soil in the delta mineral rich and actually is the reason for the breadbasket. Yeah. And of course then, as these new waters come in and as the monsoons, as the rains come in, what you have is you've got a, a clash of the extraordinary hot land temperature in the Mediterranean and then this swelling of the Mediterranean from the flooding of the Nile causing huge amounts of evaporation and ultimately leading about two weeks later to the weather breaking in this part of the world and rain coming in. And that's Jesus, just the end of Mark, the holiday. you turned into a geographer. <laughs> I know, At I'm long last. I'm sitting, I'm sitting here in Croatia contemplating the clouds and all this sort of carry on. <laughs> but to come back to the whole idea, but this is why we have national holidays in August, right? This is why the whole world, certainly the European world, goes on holidays in August, right? One is this climatic difference. Two is the fact it gets far too hot in August to work. Three, the Romans decided it was going to be a holiday because Augustus was Fair saying it's them. going to be a holiday. Yeah. Now, when everybody is idle in August, mendacious hands get to work. This is my theory as to why <laughs> things happen in August that are unexpected. So, for example, the fall of Afghanistan in August, right? Sure. But if you, if you look at it, in 1991 in August, the communist staged a coup against Gorbachev to try and reverse the dismantling of the Soviet Union. The Berlin Wall comes into existence on the 13th of August. And again, you right. have the same thing. People are on holidays. They're kind of like in a different sort of mood. They're not paying attention. And suddenly- The heat has kind of addled their brains at that stage. The heat has completely addled their brain. The heat has completely addled their brain. And if you look at the First World War, 
you know, was basically an August event. It was really the 3rd yeah. of August when the whole thing started. And, and what you have is this idea that even like Martin Luther's King's March on Washington in August as well. So you have big, big events either planned because people are on holidays or planned because people are on holidays to take people by surprise, you know? I also noticed that Julius Caesar, if you really wanted invaded Britain in August. There you go. Yep, good man. So what I'm saying is August is an interesting month for big events happening. And yeah. I think it's yeah. related to the holidays and I think it's related to the fact that people take their eye off the ball and you can kind of take people by surprise in August. Also, financial markets, John, just so we know, tend to have the first tremors in August. Lehman Brothers collapsed in August. The first mm. subprime crisis was in August 2007 in the subprime disaster with Bear Stearns. Yeah. So what you have, yeah. and again, you know, the the Irish the Irish banking collapsed really the amount of money that left the country in August 2008 was much more than September. So what you have is, again, this sense that events happen in August because people are kind of like on their holidays and markets are thin, attention spans are thin, and away you go. Do you know, I've always seen August or the end of August as kind of the new year, the start of the new year, probably because of you know, that's the start of the academic year, going back to school, going back to college. Yeah. Then there's things like the start of the new premiership season, all that kind of stuff. Well, I think you're right, because I think that I think that our our worldview is dominated by this break in the summer, much more so than the break at Christmas. Because yeah. the break in the summer does constitute, you know, that basically the, the nights are getting shorter, winter's coming in, school is back. Again, as I saying, we're going to talk about school on Thursday. But ultimately we're putting what is happening in the world through in the framework of the calendar and i think it's may not it might not necessarily stand up for an academic thesis john but i think it's an interesting sort <laughs> of never got the, the way before <laughs> <laughs> anyway let us go and talk about afghanistan because since we talked to nelifer you have had the explosion in kabul yeah. you've the american counter reaction to that let's go and talk to peter frankopan who is one of the leading experts on that part of the world, historian, political and analyst, and all around good egg. So let's go and talk to Peter. Now, obviously, the biggest story of the last couple of weeks, in fact, the biggest story that's been recurring and rumbling on for many, many years is Afghanistan. And what has happened in the last couple of weeks is shocking to most people. Certain people know the territory, very few know it as well as our next guest, Peter Frankopan, the author of The Extraordinary Silk Roads. And again, anybody who is interested in this area should pick up a copy of that. Also, I was thinking, as Peter's new podcast, I was listening to it last night. I had listened to a fantastic one with Tim Marshall, the great geographer, the guy who wrote The Prisoners of Geography. Fascinating podcast. So, you know, when you have listened to this podcast, put in your earplugs and listen to Peter's, which is I Was Thinking with Peter Frankopan. Peter, how are you? Yeah, not too bad. Thanks. Thanks, David. How about you? I'm great. Well, I'm down in your neck of the woods. I'm down in Croatia, so we can do this uh, in Hrvatsky if you want to. But uh, it is fantastic. I'm sitting outside. I'm really going to annoy John here. I'm sitting outside in the front garden in about 28 degrees heat, listening to the crickets, watching summer as it has uh, unfolded here. And it just doesn't do so in Ireland. It all adds to the atmosphere, Mike. That's okay. Can you hear the crickets, can, John? Can you hear the whole thing? I can feel your listeners slipping away in front of you know people unsubscribing as the as the jealousy kicks in. I'm gonna, I might be one of them. 
Okay, Peter, listen, tell me, what. let's look at the last two weeks, three weeks. What do you think went wrong? What happened? Put it all into context first. Well, I, I think that, that I suppose it'd be like an illness that the final stages of the death of the patient, you know, didn't take any of the doctors by surprise. I, you know, I don't think anything that we've seen in the last couple of weeks has been extremely radical. I, I guess the thing that's taken a few people by shock has been the speed. But, you know, I think that the the, the big problem, I guess, of what we're looking at is uh, that I don't think many people in Afghanistan are pro-Taliban. I don't think there's, you know, half the population not extremely pleased about the attitudes and uh, policies that are going to happen towards women. We've seen that already happen in the last 48 hours, the first sort of announcements about what kind of restrictions they're going to be. Uh, but there's not a single person on the streets of Kabul, Mazar-e-Sharif, Herat, or any other city in Afghanistan who is lamenting the fall of the government you know, that was in place. You know, I think that the, the problem was, I guess, threefold. First, when the US and their allies went in in 2001, there was no sort of there was no set plan of what success would look like. There was a sort of response to 9/11, and the headline was "Track down Bin Laden." Um, once that had eventually happened in 2011, uh, it wasn't clear what was going to you know what, what next it would look like. So the lack of a kind of master plan was the first thing. The second is is that uh, for better or worse, and I guess mainly for worse, the structure that got built in Afghanistan was one that was porous. It was corrupt. Uh, it enabled weak politicians, rubbish governors to not just stay in place, but to flourish at the expense of of the many and the poor in particular. And so as a result, the credibility that the government had outside the green zone, outside the safety of their armor-plated cars and outside the luxuries uh, meant that they were both a, ba- a useless government, but also a notoriously bad one. The levels of corruption uh, were endemic and were all known about. You know, So even the United States... In a, in a report produced in, in 2017, the estimate was that 40% of defense contracts found their way, 40%, you know, it's a big number, we're talking wow. into billions of dollars, found their way out of the system straight away. So there was, there was knowledge that that's what it looked like. It wasn't a surprise. And then the third thing was that the Taliban offer a, a particularly clear message of what they're offering. It's not a particularly appealing one, particularly if you're one of David's subscribers listening to the podcast. I suspect not that many people will share the Taliban view on the world. But there's clarity. It's clear what they're trying to achieve. It's clear what they what they believe, what they think. And I guess the single the single most important element of that is probably not to do with the treatment of women or people getting their hands cut off, stoned to death, executed. That sort of brutal side of it is that the Taliban, even in the 90s, were quite good at putting in place a legal system that worked. So in the last 20 years, if you're a small landowner, small businessman, uh, if somebody could pop up from the sky and take your stuff away from you and flash a card and say they're being backed by the allies. And, and the Taliban were quite good, I mean, you know, all things considered, in explaining that they were there to provide justice. And so that mandate is now, you know, we're all watching to see how it's going to unfold. There's been a lot of breathy hot air in the last couple of last week, I guess, hoping that this might be Taliban 2.0. Those of us who follow this region, I don't have too many illusions about what the future might, might bring. And that's why thousands, tens of thousands are trying to get out of the country. Um, but, you know, I think that that in terms of the shock and surprise, it's only that things melted quite quickly. But, you know, even CIA assessments were aware that the government might crumble this quickly. Um, so I don't think that the, the sort of the surprise and the shock and the horror that we've all been expressing has any kind of reality to those who follow the nuts and bolts of what happens in the country. It's the news cycle that suddenly gets everybody overexcited. Now everyone's an expert on Afghanistan and Central Central Asia. And, you know, I think those of us who've been watching have been pretty sober about this for quite a while. Peter, can I go back? Because I think it's important just to 
take that idea of those of us who've been watching for quite a while. I think I was the first person maybe to interview you on the Silk Roads many years ago. I think it was your was your maiden gig was in Dublin Castle. Do you remember that? I got, I got invited to email out of the blue saying, come to Dublin. I sat in the green room, you know, lo- looking over my notes, like, a, like, a, like, you know, going to a job interview with a suit and tie, getting ready to keep the happy people of Dublin. Then someone called, came and told me and said 600 people had turned up. And I thought, wow, for me. And they went, well, actually, there's this quite well-known media personality, journalist, writer who's going to come and interview you. So then I thought, OK, well, I should have done a bit more of my homework. Then you walked in and started speaking Croatian to me. So, yeah, the whole thing was a bit of a surreal experience. But yeah, yeah, you talent spotted me. So you're, the, you're my Louis Walsh, David. You, you spotted me early and made me, into, made me into the great star that I became. So I, I owe you. That's why, that's why you get 10%. You are my Louis Walsh. Now that, I think that's the, actually, that is, that's the quote of the podcast. We have never heard that before. I have you as a member of Westlife up on a bar stool singing covers in the original Pashtun. That's what we're <laughs> going to do. Now, Peter, the thing about Silk Roads is you started the you started Silk Roads with saying, look at the world in a different way. The center of the world is Afghanistan. It is the center of the known world, or the world that was known to humans for thousands of years before we shifted our gaze towards the Atlantic and that part of the world. Explain that to me. Explain the history of Afghanistan, how significant it is, why it is the center of the Silk Roads. And and that sort of access point between India, China, Persia, Turkey, Russia, all that sort of stuff. Uh, okay, well, it's, I mean, that's a, it's a long question. I mean, I, I, I think um, Silk Roads is still available in all good bookshops. So it's, it's quite hard to put it all into a couple of, couple of words. But, you know, the part of the world that I'm interested in, I suppose the geography is important. But you as an economist, David, know that, you know, when, when it comes to following um, patterns of behavior, exchange, etc., you know, the first thing you start with is is commodities and with demographics. You know, where are people? What do they buy? What are they trying to get hold of? And Central Asia, I guess, has, has three roles. One, it's it's its own importance as an interconnected series of oasis towns, cities that are quite famous like Samarkand or Balkh or Kabul, etc. Um, Merv, which was once the biggest inhabited city on earth, and now in Turkmenistan and obscure to all but a few. Second, because of that patchwork of oasis towns, there's, there's connections into the wider world and so the conduit space. So quite often people talk about Afghanistan and Central Asia as a place that links east and west, as though it doesn't make any difference what happens there on its own. But third, it just so happens that a lot of the commodities that are important in the world and always have been are found often in quite high concentrations in some of these countries that we're talking about today. So Afghanistan, for example, as again, as suddenly everyone seems to got overexcited about in the last week has extremely profound deposits of minerals, particularly things like copper, cobalt, lithium, and so on. But the whole region is famous for its lapis lazuli. It's famous for its gold production. It's famous also for coal in lots of places. But further west, places like Iran has some of the biggest oil deposits in the world. Uh, you know, So these connections and highways are ones that for thousands of years have dominated world history. And I guess if I was to put a couple of headlines onto what my Silk Road book is about, it's that Alexander the Great didn't head towards Rome or Paris or London or Dublin when he wanted to conquer the world. He set out towards the east, conquered Persia, Central Asia, and got to the Himalayas. And then famously, according to one of his biographers, cried salt tears because there was nothing else in the world left left to conquer. They're like when Bono's last album came out. You know, you've scaled these heights. There's nothing more that you can do. 
that that's one part. But the second, even when the West and Western Europe got in on the act, you know, the British got rich by building connections through to reach India and to China. You know, that's how the British Empire got built. And, you know, the United States, it was no coincidence when it declared independence. It declared independence in 1776 as a direct result. And this pamphlets are being issued in the years beforehand to compare what it meant to be a colony ruled from London with what it looked like to be ruled in Bengal, where tens of millions had died in a famine. And people in the United States said, look, if we don't have any representation in the UK, then why should we bother being a colony? Let's take our own fortune. So, And tea from India that had been shipped was, was what was dumped into the harbour in Boston. So that part of the world, those connections, the people, the commodities, the goods and networks have shaped all of our histories. You know, even, even in the 20th century, we kind of think of the First and the Second World War as the defining parts of it. But the, the strand for me that's gone through the entire 20th century has been about Iran, Saudi Arabia, oil, Afghanistan, Central Asia, India, Pakistan, and, you know, right now, the rise of China, South Asia, and Asia as a whole. Can I just talk to you a little bit about Russia? Because Afghanistan first came into my worldview when I was in school. And uh, I think it must have been about 1980 when Russia rolled into Afghanistan and suddenly people were saying, oh, tell me about this place, Afghanistan. And the Russians stayed there for 10 years, left quite quickly and, and quite chaotically. And I remember a guy called Najibullah, who was the boss man there, got strung up uh, in public. Tell me about the, the, the conflict between Russia and the West in Afghanistan. Well, I, I was at school too, and you know, the question that no one ever answered is, why were the Soviets in Afghanistan? You know, and even today, people are going to struggle to be able to say that. They, well, everyone will know that the Soviet Union went in in 79, and that they went left 10 years later, and it'd been an unwinnable war, and the story of the Mojahedin and CIA helping supply weapons and small arms and then bigger arms to the plucky freedom fighters who then turned into the core of the Taliban. But we don't really think about why the Soviet Union went in in the first place. And that, I think, is quite important. Do you remember? Why did they? Well, you tell me. You were watching on telly. Uh, it was to, I remember, always the situation was to, to spread the good word of uh, Sovietism to the grateful people of Afghanistan. I do remember that was the sort of line that then, of course, the BBC chuckled at and told themselves imperialist Soviet expansion. I can't remember. No, you see, you're a very good student. In fact, it was very, it, that, I mean, that's broadly right. I think you get a B plus for sure. God, I'm patronised. <laughs> so sorry. I'm on, yes, I'm on holiday. It's my university patronising, you know, tutor. I'll teach. You know, in fact, it was partly because what happened in Iran next door. And in Iran in 1979, there had been uh, the big Islamic revolution, the return of Khomeini. And the fear of the spread of Islamic fundamentalism, what spooked the United States and spooked Moscow at that time, also in 79, which we don't really think about in the same time, same term, is the attack on Mecca in Saudi Arabia that led to a sort of pretty important reconfiguration of Saudi Arabia in towards supporting, it, it turned into what came to support for hardline Islamic fundamentalism, because the critique of the, of the people who stormed Mecca was that the Saudi regime was, was weak, it was over-tolerant, over-westernized. And the invasion of Afghanistan was part of that story, a bit like the bigger picture of what happened in 2011, I mean, 2001, rather, after 9-11, where Donald Rumsfeld said very famously, um, after the attacks, about 10 days after the 9-11 attacks, he said, this is the single best chance for the United States in its history to reshape and redraw the geopolitical map of the world and to lead to regime change in, of course, Afghanistan, which was a small fruit on the tree, but above all in Iran and Iraq. So this big game that has been played, this big sort of mess up and misunderstanding of the world, has not just been about 
you know, plucky guerrilla warfare in valley, in mountain valleys in Afghanistan. It's been about big picture stuff, about analysts in Moscow, in Washington, I suspect in Beijing, in Riyadh, in Islamabad, projecting their ideas, projecting their fears onto the same part of the world. And the amazing thing is it's been part of our life, as you exactly say, uh, Afghanistan has been in the news for 40 years, basically nonstop. Level of knowledge about the history's country, uh, culture, about its language, about its customs, about its history, has basically not improved in the space of 40 years, which is which is incredible, really. You know, so kids in school don't learn about Afghanistan, they don't learn about Central Asia, they don't learn about Iran, they don't learn about Saudi Arabia, they don't learn about Pakistan. So we 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 have produced then a, a stream of politicians, diplomats, business people, charity workers who go into these places blind. And the most sobering lesson, I guess, of the last week is how little we understand other places where people don't look exactly like us and think the same way. And we're shocked when people don't want to listen to the same music, don't want to behave the same way, don't want to think the same things. And it's a real challenge for us, I think, in the West to square, you know, what do we think we're doing in terms of, you know, we all believe we're Democrats, which is a cause of problems actually half the time with our news because we complain that people have different opinions, but how do we engage with the parts of the world that are quite far away and, you know, the, the, I guess the big question that Biden's been trying to answer is this has got nothing to do with us. You know, we've given it a shot. Let's cut our losses and let's make America great again. That's basically what Biden said, which happens to be in the slogan of his predecessor as well. Well, it's interesting. A little, little aside, uh, that, that student you were talking about who got the B+, plus, which I'm actually quite impressed by having got the B+, plus, <laughs> uh, first also came into reality of Afghanistan when, as a student in Moscow, I went over to Moscow in about 1986, 87, and the, the first time Afghanistan came into my hand was that we were trying to trade Levi's for vodka, as was the old trade. But suddenly the Russian soldiers who were actually trading with us came up with hash from Afghanistan. And that's when we realized that the Russians were the same as everybody else, that the soldiers were down there fighting. But actually, the fact that they were actually bringing home to Moscow was big blocks of hash from Afghanistan that they were selling to anybody they could possibly do. And uh, a couple of Trinity students were at the tail end of that supply chain. So I do remember this is globalization 101. This is what I remember about globalization from Afghanistan, Peter. I'm not sure your august uh, students at Oxford are up to the same carry on or you were up to the same carry on, but it shows you that trade is essential to the whole thing. I can tell you, I was in Moscow and Leningrad, as it was then, at exactly the same time. Probably we've been tailed by the same people. And uh, my Levi's, the only thing people wanted were my, uh, not, I didn't have it, unfortunately, but Doctor and the Medics, audio cassette tapes. That's all they wanted. That's they, didn't want, they didn't want anything else that I had. They didn't want the, didn't want the jeans. They had vodka for the Doctor and the Medics. So I don't know what that, that tells you. Um, but, you know, uh, no, you know I, th I think that that globalization is, it, that picture is kind of important. You know, and I, I, I think it is a serious thing that, about the disconnect we have, that the, the amount of space that Afghanistan's filled in the newspapers, on the radio, on the TV in the last, the last week or 10 days, has been sort of like a tsunami. And in fact, the amount that, of coverage and thought that's gone into what are we doing there for the last 20 years has been, has been pretty, pretty minimal, really. Peter, in, in 2004, I was working with the BBC World Service in the Eurasia region. That was my area. And in 2004, I was panelling the desk for the live broadcast of the first Afghan elections where Hamid Karzai was elected president. But these elections were held up by the West as, look, we're bringing democracy to the world. Isn't this wonderful? Our policies are working, yada, yada. But I'm curious, what went wrong after that? What went wrong after those elections? Well, I know Hamid Karzai. I mean, I saw him, I saw him, I had dinner with him about two or three months before we locked down uh, when I was in Central Asia. 
And, you know, he's a very impressive, persuasive, eloquent man. But, you know, individuals who are charismatic, you know, don't pay wages. You know, they're not in charge of the nuts and bolts. You know, a state that doesn't function properly collapses. You know, states are a bit like marriages that, you know, if if you can't make things work, if you can't get on with each other, you know, things break down. And that's a function of any state in any political context. And the big problem with Afghanistan is that, you know, how do you pay the wages of, you know, bus drivers, policemen, petty officials? And when cash starts to leak out of the system and you have rent farming, where you have people whose job is to collect cash and they funnel and take money for themselves, then, um, you know, that, that, that causes problems. You know, as, as it happened, one of the big challenges was that in 2001, after the, oh, well, 2002, from onwards, after the um, US and their allies got to Kabul, one of the big questions was what to do about uh, Afghan agriculture. You know, Afghan has got all these, Afghanistan's got all these minerals. They're, they're difficult and complicated to extract. And as David says, the problem about being the center of the world is you're also a long way from everywhere, right? I mean, it's great on a map if you're a policymaker, but, you know, there are practicalities to of extracting and getting things that's cost of, of transit, et cetera, is, is high. Lots of states started to avoid Afghanistan because they're worried about the security implications. But, you know, heroin is one of the, and opium growth is one of the big things in Afghanistan. And, and one of the things that Western policymakers said, particularly from the U.S., would say, well, it's wrong that, that Afghanistan is a culture that's based on drug production. You can see why, you know, the experiences in Colombia, et cetera. Possibly there could have been more enlightened ways of doing it rather than burning fields filled with poppies. You know, perhaps the market could have intervened to have acquired their crops and then disposed of them separately at a market value or maybe even market plus. But I think that the, the, lack, of, the lack of working out what does Afghanistan look like outside the corridors of power in the presidential palace in Kabul, how do cities function? How does pay get made? What should happen in small fields? Who owned land holdings? And also the, the Haqqani network and, and big tribal warlords were inevitably going to sit and bide their time by, by recruiting hearts and minds, by saying anybody who supports Karzai was a Western stooge. You know, that was the big challenge in Afghanistan. And it's a very persuasive, easy line to be selling that, you know, no disrespect to the Americans or the British, but they should get out of our country. And you know that there's a, there are versions of those kind of discussions in almost every country on earth. So I think there were lots of things that that went wrong. I mean, if you were being very cynical, you'd say Afghanistan in that incarnation, 2004, was dead on arrival. You know, it was never going to go anywhere, and the, and the patient has been kept artificially alive by billions and hundreds of billions of dollars being pumped in because we 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 kept singing about things that we wanted to sing about. We heard the things we wanted to hear. We saw the things we wanted to see. We kept saying things were getting better. We kept saying the Afghans are delighted and pleased, but we, you know, we didn't have a great deal of, of reality in that. And you know, British soldiers deployed into Helmand province, into Lashkargoh, and they'd come back and, and talk about how they'd seen things. Would say on the ground, the Afghans are famous for their hospitality, for their kindness, and so on. But it was dealing with the the networks that they were up against, who were very able to mobilise, and we completely underestimated them. Can I just before you go, uh, Peter? Can I just come back to the map and? Uh the sense that we've got Pakistan to the south, Iran to the west, the stands and Russia to the north, China further east, China, India further southeast. I mean, what is the significance now to that map, to the political settlement, to the status quo of a Taliban-run Afghanistan? What do you think is the next moves? Are, are there are the next ramifications of this, both religious, both economic, both geopolitical? I think those those all flow further down the line. I think the first question is, is the Taliban 
well, obviously, what, what vision does it actually have? But the, the real question is, is the Taliban able to administer and govern those territories that it's now taken control over? And some of that is, as John, as John will know, some of that is a personality issue. You know, is there authority, Baradar and the rest of the Taliban leadership, you know, will people follow them through? And that would be partly based on personality, partly based on reward structures, you know, what, what's in it for them. Some of that will be on who fancies their chance at maybe pushing them themselves up the batting order. But then, you know, are the nuts and bolts, can the population of Afghanistan get fed this autumn and winter? And if so, with what? And who's going to pay for it? You know, where's food going to come from? Do supply networks break down at roadblocks? Do those uh, Taliban's with their white flags, or Taliban with the white flags, uh, administering checks? Do they let vehicles through that are carrying food? And, and who gets first dibs on that? You know, does your do you prioritize, yeah. first of all, men and young men and supporters with, with their Kalashnikovs, or do you support the poor, the women, the children? So before one thinks about the sort of big picture, I think it's how does the structure of now Taliban Afghanistan look? How competent will this system re- regime be as administrators? You know, the median age in Afghanistan is about 18. 60% of the population is under the age of 25. And, you know, as, as you know, in Ireland, a young, vibrant population can be extremely tolerant. They can be they can be challenging the elders, telling them that they're fed up with the way things are how they used to be, and and that can be incredibly dynamic. You know, there are all sorts of reasons yeah. to think that uh, that there can be a better future in Afghanistan than the doom and gloom that we're predicting. But that comes with its own challenges. You know, how likely is it that that old guard will relinquish power, relinquish their positions? And that hasn't happened particularly well in, in Pakistan, for example, where again young population find it very difficult to get there ideas pushed through and to be and their, and their gains to be protected so i think i think before one thinks about the big thing it's what do these next weeks and months have in store and you know for example what should the government of ireland or or the uk what what should we do if there start to be food shortages are we going to be humanitarian and say we've left in the way that we left but we're going to send rice and, and grain or we're going to say you're on your own and or speak to your new friends in different countries um you know what what what, what kind of dialogue if any are we going to have and Lots of other countries in places like China, Uzbekistan, Iran have been busy for the last three or four years building up pretty constructive dialogues with these guys, with the Taliban. And uh, my, my guess would be the West, we feel that it's our time has come and, and the withdrawal means that we, we disengage. And we've spoken about this before on your podcast, and we've spoken about this many times before, you and I, David, that that, that wheel of power, important significance heading back towards Asia seems to me unstoppable. And it's not just about Afghanistan and crisis. You know, if you want to solve the climate crisis, we'll do something. I've got a big book about climate coming out next year. You know, 496 of the world's most 500 polluted cities are in Asia. You know, so if you want to fix climate, you know, it's not doing a bit more recycling in County Wicklow or in Galway, although please keep doing that. It's about how does one fix those exactly the same thing that almost the first sentence we, we spoke about, demographics, commodities and trade right and if you if you're caught if you're paying attention to what matters in the film or in history or in politics then you're watching the right space it doesn't mean you're gonna be right in your analysis and i'm sure there are lots of things that i i think are, are have been wrong and probably are wrong but at least you're you're trying to pull things together what's very difficult is to react at speed with the knee-jerk reactions about what people think is going on and it's all based on whispers and gossip rather than the nitty-gritty of being what i do my day job is a boring professor sitting in a library or traveling to different parts of the world and the grunt work that then, you know, gets you onto podcasts like this, where you have a platform to be able to say what you think, but I'm distilling the words of of hundreds of my colleagues, thousands and thousands of books 
and you know spending a lot of time thinking about it you know we university professors do have a value uh, when there's a crisis I, I think we have a value when things are going well but no one no one gives give me a call when that happens it's only when when all hell breaks loose Listen, as you said, my Louis Walsh talent contract is out. We're going to zap it over to you. I think 15%, Peter, is probably fair given, you know, that you've, you know, uh, you, you've, you've got to make a name for yourself now. You know? right, I'll do it. 15, okay. All right, I'll boss. Listen, you got the golden button. <laughs> Take care, Peter. Lovely to talk to you. Thanks, guys. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. So, Louis, <laughs> does that make me Simon Carroll? <laughs> oh, my goodness. With your trousers up around your chest. <laughs> But come here, listen, I, I, I think uh, Peter was brilliant there, but it has always amazed me the kind of lack of foresight that the West, and particularly America, has always had, particularly in that region. Their lack of understanding, their, their ignorance and arrogance then to go in and say, we can kind of meddle around with these guys, change regimes. And it's not just Afghanistan. You know, back in 1953 as well, with the coup d'etat in Iran and stuff. So there's a real lack of... Muzadek, yeah. Yeah. There's a real lack of understanding of that region. Uh, And it's kind of what what Peter was saying there. You've just prompted a thought in my head, which is I read a book on the history of the CIA. I'm trying to remember what the book was. I'll I'll get it again and we'll come back to it. With John Brennan. Well, I I was interviewing John Brennan for the Dorky Book Festival. Yeah. 
And I, there was an amazing, I read a couple of books beforehand, but one of the history of the CIA was this idea was the CIA kind of morphed from trying to influence policy in America to regime change in other countries. And it was a sort of moment when the, the CIA began to morph. And there's always been this, in fairness to this, the Americans, I don't, I don't think America has ever seen itself as an empire, John, in the sense that they're going to go in and put troops on the ground and stay in countries for a long, long time. It actually is, it kind of goes against the American Republican, old Republican idea that it is a republic. Because if you're not an empire, then your people are never behind long-term incursions in other countries because it doesn't feel right. Whereas the British Empire was built on, we're going to go out and kick lumps out of people. And the people were behind those. Part of the glory of the British Empire was actually acquiring territory. But is it not a different territory. kind of empire where it's an empire of of soft power, as you say, a, a yeah. cultural change as opposed to you know ruling by force? I, I think that's the dilemma at the core of the United States, that, yeah. that they don't really know where their power actually resides. They don't really know how to deploy power. And when they're confused in their deployment of power, they become completely frustrated at their inability to control world events in the way in which they think they should do. So I think that maybe if the long-term lesson of Afghanistan is the confusion at the heart of the United States and the fact that the president will always pay the price for what is, in fact, internal wranglings within a very complex society. Well, that's right. And I think that given that America is so divided now, it's more divided now than it has ever been, that the Republicans are absolutely baying for Biden's blood at this stage. But not only that, like Americans tend to have this kind of inflated opinion of their military might. And on paper, they probably do. But it's more of a kind of a brute force and ignorance approach. But you got to remember, they have lost almost every single conflict, major conflict they've been involved in since World War II. You know, from Korea, Vietnam, the Gulf Wars, Iraq, and now Afghanistan. Yeah. Not to mention they're meddling in South and Central America with their invasions of, actually, that's probably their only one, the invasion of Panama and the island of Grenada. <laughs> which which is kind of, yeah, it is, it is, it's an extraordinary indictment. Yeah. But I'll probably get some backlash for that. But anyway. So, John, I think the big question for politics, economics, finance and whatever is, is this Joe Biden's Jimmy Carter moment, right? The Jimmy Carter moment was when Jimmy Carter, as president of the United States, as a Democratic president of the United States, because the Republicans will always try and undermine the Democrats and say, you're not good on foreign policy, you're not good in the yeah. military, etc. right? Mm. Jimmy Carter's moment was the Iran hostage siege in 1978, stroke 79, went into 79. And then the legacy went into the election of 1980, which actually gave Ronald Reagan the platform to actually go and win the election in 1980. The idea was that Carter couldn't extricate his people out of Iran and therefore was humiliated into negotiating with a regime that the Americans had sort of laughed at as a bunch of mullahs and people who can't yeah. do anything properly. We're the boss. And then suddenly they found themselves negotiating with them and not being able to. So the question then is this Biden's moment where all the good stuff he's doing on MMT, on the budget, on trying to get the infrastructure bill going, all that great stuff comes apart at the seams because 
the evacuation of Kabul has been so chaotic. And don't forget, the only thing the Democrats are focused on right now is the midterm elections. If they lose the midterm elections, Biden loses the wafer, wafer thin opportunity he has to take both the House and the Senate with them, and they're back into gridlock. So only in November of next year, John, will we know the collateral damage that has been inflicted on the Biden regime from the images you're seeing in Afghanistan this week, next week, and over the course of the next few months. To all you Patreons out there, thank you so much for supporting us. We couldn't do this without your support. It means a huge amount to us. Also, all your feedback, your suggestions, your comments, our comments to you, our replies to you, really is the essence of the whole thing. So, again, thank you very much. And for all of you who might want to support us, check us out. Patreon.com forward slash David McWilliams. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app. You can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM.